everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Justin Ongchen. And I'm Isabella Davis. And today we're speaking with Professor Steven Pinker, a renowned cognitive psychologist and public intellectual who conducts research on psycholinguistics, visual cognition, and social relations. Originally from Montreal, Professor Pinker earned his BA from McGill and his PhD from Harvard, where he is currently the Johnstone Professor of Psychology. A champion of reason and progress, he's elected member of the National Academy of Sciences, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, a humanist of the year, and was listed as one of Time's 100 most influential people in the world today. His most recent book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters, was published in September 2021. Thank you for joining us, Professor Finger. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. So we want to start off with a discussion about your 2018 book, Enlightenment Now. Um, and if any of our listeners aren't aware of the book, basically your main argument was that there's been a general trend of progress in the human condition since the Enlightenment. Um, and I think I can speak for a lot of my generation when I say, you know, we kind of adopt this sense of pessimism and general sense of dread about the future. Um, you know, and I'm guilty of this as anyone, I think, with everything from the epistemic threat of climate change to the current COVID-19 pandemic we're experiencing, it can feel at times like there's not a lot of hope for the future. Um, and I think I share your worry that this pessimism could eventually turn into fatalism if unchecked. Um, so I suppose this is a tough question, but mm -hmm. what reasons can you give younger generations to be hopeful about our future? Yeah, I guess what is to, to uh, remind this generation that my generation went through the same thing. Yeah. Uh, because for us, we, we're going to all be annihilated in thermonuclear World War okay. III between the Soviet Union and the U.S. I don't know if you're a Bob Dylan fan, but in his mm -hmm. Masters of War song, he'd have, have the line, you brought the big worst fear. Uh, that could ever be feared, the fear to bring children into the world. This is like yeah. 1962 <laughs> or 63. Totally. Uh, so, and, and there, it is a recurring theme that adds drama to your mm -hmm. own existence, that you're the less, you're meaning generically, uh, us, everyone, mm -hmm. that you're the, the, the last generation that totally. adds a yeah. kind of a, uh, poignancy and pathos and, and drama. So you, you have to, one has to discount one's own feelings. Right. Uh, and that temptation. But there are, uh, there is the uh, danger that, uh, that prematurely believing that we're doomed can be a self-fulfilling prophecy in, because it implies that there's no point in trying to make anything better because mm -hmm. we're doomed anyway. Just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. The, the problems that, are fa that we face are formidable and then they're not going to solve themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, climate change is the biggest problem that uh, our species has ever faced. Uh, calling it existential is probably an exaggeration. That I mean, mm. it could lead things could be awful without being existential. Okay. So forget existential. It is. <laughs> it's, it, it, we're in for uh, terrible things if we don't uh, mitigate it. But let's get down to work and do it. Let's figure out what would it take to get us to zero emissions. Uh, what would it take to uh, limit the damage that inevitably will occur, uh, and what are what are the flaws in our democracy, and how should we uh, deal with them? You mentioned COVID, but you know COVID is a problem that we're in the process of solving now. Of course, yeah. you know uh, there there are people who are 
uh, kind of getting in the way of the solution by, by not getting vaccinated. <laughs> right. uh, but that, that too is a problem that we mm-hmm. should think of solving. How do we increase trust in institutions so that uh, fewer people will, uh, will, will resist what's obviously good for them and for everyone else? Carter, no, that totally makes sense. Thank you for um, that advice. It's no secret that Enlightenment Now has been very successful, um, but with mass publicity often comes criticism. Um, what do you think is the most convincing piece of criticism you've received and how have you responded to it? Yes, well, the um, uh, if it was since I only wrote it a few years ago, if I had thought it was convincing in the first place, I would have written the book differently. <laughs> so so not, nothing really shocked me because I had uh, I had presented versions of it. I had circulated it to people for comments. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm talking now about drafts before it was published, mm-hmm. so you know it was unlikely I was going to be blindsided by something that I never had, had you know never heard before. Yeah, I, I suppose one could say that the that perhaps the discussion, the treatment of the environment in the book, mm-hmm. uh, kind of downplayed some of the. Uh, uh, dire changes that we're, we're undergoing. I wanted to emphasize that progress in uh, cleaning up the environment mm-hmm. is possible. Uh, I had an, a chapter on inequality, which uh, I, I might have written it a little uh, differently today to take into a give greater um, weight to the, the uh, um, problem that rich people can um, game the system to their mm-hmm. benefit. Uh, and that the levels of inequality in the United States were, were getting a little ridiculous. The main argument in that chapter was mm-hmm. that what we should really be concerned with morally is not the gap between the rich and poor, but how uh, well off the poor are. That the immoral imperatives is raise the bottom, not not narrow the gap. I do remember that. I do remember reading that chapter. So thank you. It's 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 so cool hearing you um, articulate it in person. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we also want to make sure to discuss your most recent book on rationality. Um, and I started reading it and I was really excited because a lot of the content is in line with what I've been learning in my behavioral economics course. Oh, yes, um, of course. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so it felt very timely. Um, and so I have a specific question, something we've discussed a lot in class. Um, so you outline a lot of common errors in human reasoning, things like, you know, the availability bias, base, base rate neglect, um, conjunction fallacy, things like that. Um, and a lot of those stem from the foundational studies of Kahneman and Tversky. So I guess I'm wondering, to what extent do you think those biases and errors in reasoning are the results of potentially confusingly worded or deceptive prompts and experiments versus you know, genu- genuine errors in rationality that we need to remedy? Yeah, it's a great question. And some of them can be, some of those fallacies mm-hmm. and errors can be reduced by changes in wording, by change, uh, and the changes in wording lead to changes in visualization. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is how the how people represent mm-hmm. a problem in their, in their mind's eye. And often you can reduce the uh, error by uh, having people think, for example, in terms of uh, numbers of actual people rather right. than the somewhat philosophical question of the probability of a single event. Mm, so just so to, frequency to be, to be, rather than frequency yeah, rather than, yeah. than than probability. I mean, just to be concrete, so that listeners will know what, mm-hmm. what, what on earth we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> one of the classic uh, fallacies illustrated by Tversky and Kahneman is the the famous Linda problem. 
uh, immediately dates the problem because Linda is a baby boomer name. So we can we can also call it the Amanda problem. Or uh, Linda is a, uh, you know, a social justice warrior. She marches in at the time it was anti-nuclear demonstrations, deeply concerned about social justice. What is the probability that Linda is a bank teller? Mm-hmm. And what is the problem probability that Linda is a bank teller who's active in the feminist movement? Now, the common response is that mm-hmm. the second is more likely. She's a, more likely to be a feminist bank teller. But when you think about it, that's impossible. It's like saying that it's, you're more likely to draw a red queen from a deck of cards than mm-hmm. a queen. Uh, it just can't, can't be true. Now, <clears throat> one criticism is that the concept, uh, the probability that Linda is a feminist bank teller, it's a little bit weird. Like, mm-hmm. either she is or she isn't. What do you yeah. mean, probability? <laughs> right. sure. uh, and so one could reframe the problem and say, well, imagine a um, hundred women like Linda. Mm-hmm. Um, they are uh, uh, part, marching in anti-nuclear demonstrations and uh, are concerned with social injustice. How many of them are uh, feminist bank tellers? How many of them are bank tellers? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's the same problem, but restated. And there, people do much better. Uh, and one could say, okay, well, it, it was just a trick question. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't go away. If there are still some people who, who commit the, the fallacy. Mm-hmm. So what, in answer to your question, mm-hmm. we certainly can be um, less rational when the problems are put to us in more mind-friendly ways. Right. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, there's a little, even then, there's a bit of irrationality mm-hmm. that, uh, that, 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 that remains. The way I put it is, this is not exactly the way that Tversky and Kahneman put it, is that we are, um, uh, we are we're good at, at what you can call ecological rationality. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you know, we like to hug trees and listen to babbling mm-hmm. brooks. And, mm-hmm. uh, what, it, what it means is that in a realistic environment, uh, for example, when we are presented with concrete uh, groups of people, uh, we can be pretty rational. We have to be in order to just... Hold a job, pay our taxes, go to school, pass courses. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to formal rationality, that is the application of formulas that apply to any content across sure. the board, <clears throat> such as the probability of P and Q is less than or equal than to the probability of P. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a formula. It is always true. You don't have to be familiar with you know, Linda or social justice warriors or anything. Right. It's just always true. That's what you go to school for. Uh-huh. That's what's not as intuitive. It doesn't mean that it's 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 useless. It's that's why we go to school so we learn these formulas. But it also doesn't mean that people uh, who don't apply what they learn they, they learn in school are um, uh, crazy or irrational. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure you're uh, familiar with Occam's razor, the kind of mental model that like the simplest answer is most likely the correct one. I was wondering how Occam's razor can be used in I guess in conjunction with um, this this correct thinking, um, when faced with like the Linda problem, to to kind of um, go through decision making and mm-hmm. uh, make the right decisions. Yeah, and Occam's razor can be interpreted in different ways. Mm-hmm. You could, in, I mean, one interpretation is simply that uh, I mean you you can't use a principle like that to dictate what the universe is like. Right, totally. You, you can't say well. <laughs> There can't be nine planets because uh, that, that, that's more than we need. Occam's razor says you only need three or four. I mean, that's kind of like <laughs> yeah. there are yeah. however many there mm-hmm. are. And life is, mm-hmm. just, and you know, some things are really, really complex, like right. the immune system. It's mm-hmm. a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a you know, Rube Goldberg machine, as, as, uh, <laughs> as you put it. Uh, so uh, probably a better, since, since we can't tell you know, God what kind of universe he 
he should have created, uh, how simple or how complex it is. Maybe a better way of looking at it is it's just a way of saying uh, you have a, a burden of proof to posit anything. Mm -hmm. The more things your theory posits, the better your evidence has to be for them because if you believe in three things, that means you've got to make three arguments. If right. you believe in two things, you only have to make two arguments. Mm -hmm. You can even think of it as a, a Bayesian prior, namely all things being equal, uh, try to get away with as few uh, uh, constructs as possible. Got it, got it. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, in terms of kind of critical thinking and rationality, I was wondering how these two things could be um, better taught in universities and even in K through 12 education. Yeah, and I think they, they should. Um, that That is uh, concepts like probability and logic and uh, elementary flaws in argumentation like ad hominem arguments or guilt by association mm -hmm. should be part of the curriculum from from uh, an early age and they should, sure. uh, you know, I don't know if high school still teach trigonometry. Did you learn trigonometry? I, I didn't. Oh, yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have nothing against trigonometry. It's a beautiful area of knowledge, but given that there's only so many hours in the school day, right. probability theory would probably be a better use of mm. kids' time. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, although that having been said, the critical thinking curricula have a, a kind of um, a mediocre success mm -hmm. record in the terms of how well students assimilate the lessons uh, once, once the ink is dry on their exam. Mm -hmm. uh, the dirty little secret is that's also true of every other subject in college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, when you look at how much you know, physics or behavioral economics a student remembers one year out, it's, it's not a pretty sight. Uh, and a lot of teaching, not just critical thinking, is just ineffective because it doesn't take into advantage what we know about how, how the, the human brain learns. Right. So if it's too mm -hmm. passive, if you're just listening to a lecture, if you're just dragging a yellow highlighter across a textbook, if you're given a, a problem but you're not asked to apply the lesson of that problem to something uh, very different, uh, superficially different that is, then learning is very uh, is shallow. So what it means is not that it's useless to teach critical thinking, mm -hmm. but rather that as with all subjects, we should give some thought to what is the, mo the most effective way of teaching it. Okay. There are critical thinking programs and curricula that do lead to lasting changes, so we know it's possible. Got it. And would you suggest um, kind of the the use of uh, active uh, what is it active recall and space repetition in kind of like re remembering things? Yeah. So what it, certainly when it comes to memory, those would be excellent examples. That's right. In the case of critical thinking, the uh, the ultimate goal isn't memorizing things like the parts of a cell, mm -hmm. uh, but um, but rather modes of thinking. That is being able to spot and avoid the sunk cost fallacy, mm -hmm. whether that is consists of throwing money at a, um, a, a research project or a development project like a supersonic aircraft, uh, when it comes to fighting a war, when it comes to sitting through a movie that you're not enjoying or staying in a relationship that <laughs> is, uh, is bad for you. Uh, in all of those, one could think, well, I better not bail out. I've put so much into it so far. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a fallacy in that what you should be thinking is going forward, uh, given what I've invested, will, does it pay me to allocate my time and money and emotions in this project as opposed to other projects? Now, what's, uh, so that's not exactly a, a kind of a, mem a, a memory problem. Mm -hmm. 
What it, it is, though, and this is where critical thinking curricula often fall down, is that it's an abstract principle. And you know, movies and relationships and uh, engineering projects and wars, they seem to have nothing to do with each other. I mean, they don't look alike or sound alike. Seeing that there is a common principle underlying them, that's the tough part in critical thinking. Because people tend to be concrete. You teach them a lesson about um, you know, in investing in a project, and they remember investing in a project. And you say, well, it's the same thing in, in continuing a war. Uh, Oh, it is? Oh, but wait, a, you know, a war, they shoot each other in a project who's in a factory. <laughs> it, well, yeah, yeah, they are different, but there is that commonality of anticipated returns mm -hmm. and amount sunk so far. Right. That's right. the leap that it's, it's not natural to make, and that's what a good curriculum and a good teacher would try to get students to do. Awesome. I want to ask you about social media and irrationality, if possible. So I think you'd probably agree that social media is sort of and it seems to manufacture and engineer irrationality on a super large scale with everything from conspiracy theories during the pandemic to fake news with the election. Um, and I guess I want you to imagine for a moment that you had the opportunity to, you know, re-engineer or redesign a social media platform like Facebook, for example, um, to instead of, um, you know, promoting irrationality, rather promoting human reason, critical thinking, and rationality. And how would you go about structuring such a hypothetical social media? And do you think that's even possible? Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a, it's a good question. And I actually know Mark Zuckerberg, so I guess I could, oh, really? I could, I could <laughs> ideas, oh, I could no. give it to him. Yes, give him a suggestion. Could, <laughs> give him some suggestions. Yeah, I don't know if he wants to hear them. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I think we don't know the answer. We, mm -hmm. we know at the opposite extreme some things that work much, much better, like Wikipedia, right. which where it's, it's not a for-profit uh, mm -hmm. company. The contributors are anonymous, they, or, or, or at least they're mostly pseudonymous. They gain and lose a little bit of prestige within the community of Wikipedians in terms of their reputation for accuracy, but not in terms of number of shares and likes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, are, they, they, they play the game because they have taken, made a commitment to accuracy and, and uh, neutrality and objectivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, none of those could be ported over to a social right. media platform directly. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, partly, it's uh, the the uh, um, abuses from social media kind of took a lot of people by surprise. I mean, there was hmm. an idealistic st starting uh, uh, to the a start to the social media where the idea is, oh, you give everyone a voice, well, that, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> then we'll have a, like a whole new enlightenment. Right. Before social media, the cliche was uh, freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. Right. That is, there are that there's the manufacture of consent by a few media oligarchies, you know, CBS and NBC and the New York Times, and that uh, I would have a, a kind of information utopia mm -hmm. if anyone could publish, and they didn't have to be rich enough to own a printing right. press. Well, it didn't work out that way. Right. Uh, part, perhaps because people kind of overestimated the goodness and um, uh, truth-seeking of human nature. And, you know, we, we kind of got what we asked for, namely people saying, saying what they want. But the reason I bring that up is, mm -hmm. and, and getting back to your, your totally, question, yeah. Isabel, that um, a lot of these things probably could not be predicted a priori. That is, if I tried to design one, the first thing I'd want to do is test it to see mm -hmm. how it worked, uh, because probably I'm not smart enough to work out what happens when you have not just one person with a tool, 
but a million people reacting, you know, each of whom reacts to 999,999 other people. What happens? No one can kind of play that in their imagination. Mm -hmm. It's a case where we really have to, I think, you know, do experiments and see, see what happens. Absolutely. You mentioned human nature in there, and I guess I, I read your book, The Blank Slate, um, for a class a few years ago. It's called The History and Science of Innateness. It was super awesome. Um, and basically in your book, you discuss sort of the new science of human nature in opposition to kind of conceptions of the blank slate at birth. Um, I'm wondering your perspective on kind of the nature versus nurture debate. Do you think that debate is an oversimplification of the complex interaction with genes in the environment? Um, do you think, you know, nature and nurture are always working together and they're intrinsically linked or can they be separated? And well, it, it, it is um, oversimplistic if it's a dichotomy, mm -hmm. nature mm -hmm. or nurture. It is also if it's um, just considered uh, two ingredients in a cocktail, mm -hmm. a certain percentage nature, a certain percentage nurture, uh, although that can make sense in the narrow context of partitioning variance, that mm -hmm. is, not how much of your intelligence is innate or learned, but how many, much of the differences in intelligence in a big sample of people can be attributed to their, their genes or environment. But in general, when we talk about uh, what's innate, we're talking about abilities that have, the, uh, uh, <coughs> systems that have the ability to learn. Mm -hmm. The question is, what are the innate learning abilities that make learning possible? That was the, mm -hmm. that's how I came to Nature and Nurture via an interest in how kids acquire language, mm -hmm. where obviously they don't, you know, no child is born speaking English or any other language. On the other hand, it isn't just that there's a generic ability to learn, because we know that, you know, cats learn and dogs learn, <laughs> you can train them, but they don't learn, you know, English or, or Japanese or any other language. So it's the uh, kinds of learning that you were capable of. What are the categories into which we carve reality? What are the things that we, I mean, we as babies mm. look for? Uh, and so the, to a cognitive scientist, the way to make, I, I argue, to make sense of, of um, uh, nature, nurture, ready environment, isn't to say, well, it's all really complex, it's interactive all the, the way down. I mean, that's kind of true, but it doesn't really give you any insight. Right. I call this uh, holistic interactionism. Uh -huh. Namely, mm -hmm. oh, it's also inter... Uh, uh, intertwined and intermingled and intertwingled yeah. that uh, we just got to say, oh, it's complicated. And, right. But that, that's kind of... It's a, kind of a cop-out. It's yeah. kind of a cop-out, exactly. Yeah. What, what I think you want to do is say, these are the innate learning mechanisms. Mm -hmm. This is the input. And uh, now let's see what the learning mechanisms do to the input. That is, don't make learning this magical power, this black box. But once you specify the innate mechanisms that do the learning then that's how you identify the, the, na the nature side. When it comes to different, and that's, by the way, uh, one, one of several nature-nurture problems, namely human nature. What is it that we as a species have in common? Mm -hmm. There are other nature-nurture problems, uh, such as what makes men different from women? Mm -hmm. uh, what makes one individual different from another individual? Uh, if you have a taste for inflammatory controversies, what makes one ethnic group or race different from another? And mm -hmm. they're all different questions, and the answers might be different. So, for example, it could very well be, it probably is true, that among in differences among individuals within a uh, sex, within a ethnic group, 
the uh, a lot of the differences are hereditary. The difference between you know Mike and Jason, the difference between Lisa and Amanda. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the average difference of say you know Jews and Gentiles, or blacks and whites, or Asians and and Europeans, might be completely environmental. For all we know, mm-hmm. uh, those are the the answers to those two different kinds of nature nurture questions are independent. And and likewise for men and women. Wow, that's so so fascinating. As we were running a little low in time, I was wondering, um, for spring, if I could ask you one final question. Most of our listeners are undergrads. If you if you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give your undergrad self? Yeah, um, take math courses. Oh, really? <laughs> and the reason is... Uh, well, I'm feeling there. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> the, the, the reason is that there's lots... You, you, you learn all your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so college is not the end of learning, but... It, for most of us, it is the end of studying from a textbook, taking exams, doing problem sets. You can read books like mine uh, to mm. you know, bone up on you know, cognitive science and brain science and, and even some of the tools of rationality like Bayes' theorem. But you read a book like mine, as, as many people do, and you're still not going to do, do homework. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're in college, you know, you got... Uh, that that's your opportunity to force yourself to you think through things. You have the incentive with the grades. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the fear of grades and the, the and, and the active learning in problem sets. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, it take a lot of math because that's something that you learn better in college mm-hmm. than the lifelong learning that you will do when you get out. Well, that's really unexpected and great advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Professor Pinker, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thanks, guys. Great fun.